0: Your <laughs>
1: baby, baby,
0: baby.
2: Good morning good morning, wo- morning, good morning, and welcome to 3CR Wednesday <laughs> Breakfast. <laughs> morning, Patty. Good morning, Patty. <laughs> good morning,
1: Patty. <laughs> morning, Kate and Nick. <laughs>
2: Right, geez, it does feel like it's just
3: about time for daylight savings, doesn't it? I feel like I'm getting up during the middle of the day now at well, 6 a.m. It, does. <laughs> it was
1: so different yeah, coming yeah. in. Yeah, but I think it'll be dark again next week. Next week, you know? yep. yep. No, next week. don't say that. It's been lovely. <laughs>
3: this Saturday, just in case you uh, um, haven't. Uh, Clocked on yet? Uh, is uh, daylight saving springing forward? Um, so forward one hour at what? Three in the morning? Two in the morning? Yeah, unfortunately, a
2: strange start like that, doesn't it?
3: Unfortunately, that's one of these few times that I'm actually working during that time. And now I'm confused as to whether I'm going to have to work an extra hour, or should be joyous <laughs> and I have one fewer hour to work. And
4: when's the so. change?
3: It's at two, it happens at like 2 or 3 in the morning. If you've ever worked through that period, if you work in a 24-hour place, oh, wow. um, it's, a, it's a bit depressing when you have that extra hour and it, it gets to whatever it gets to, I think, 2 a.m. And, and yeah. then go, no, it must be 3 a.m. Because oh, then no. it goes back to 2 a.m. <laughs> and you go, ah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's an extra hour there. Oh, my
3: God. What are you doing, Nick? Uh, I'm working at a music festival this uh, weekend at Eddie Head Stadium, so while the football's on over at the uh, MCG, there'll be a, a big, ridiculous trance gig that I've got to look after people at <laughs> They will
1: be dancing the night night.
3: Away. Uh, yeah, pro- away. Yeah, dancing the vomit away. <laughs> oh, not from me, oh, from okay. other
1: people. I hope not. Um, <laughs> yeah, but... You're a
2: What have we got up on the show before Eddie Head Stadium trance you down? <laughs>
1: Well, I just want to note that uh, Saudi women have been given the right to oh, vote. Oh,
4: I saw that. <laughs> Did you see that? Yes. However, not, not, not sorry, the right, right to vote right or right drive. to drive. Yeah, right, right to, to, to not drive. Vote. Sorry, beg yeah. Your pardon. But <laughs> do they order. have that right? That's a good question. Probably I, uh, that I don't know. That I don't know either. Be chasing up to yeah.
1: find out. However, it doesn't come in till June next year because they need some time to kind of work out the details.
4: Yeah, I saw that, and it was the only country that um, banned women from driving. That's right. Saw that as well. That's right. Right. Yes. And there's people, there's women locked up um, actually from, you know, um, for, for doing, for it. doing, getting for, behind the child wheel. for getting behind the wheel. To yeah. be fair,
3: ladies, they did have perfectly good scientific reasoning behind this, don't you know? that <laughs> oh, yeah. women, yeah, if you yeah. are
5: <laughs> <home right> now.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: I believe that the Saudi science minister, and I put that in quotation marks, had some pretty <laughs> well, bizarre really, and outlandish. There's a
4: science minister that had some.
3: Good, yeah. Uh, Advising women not to drive because it might lead to their ovaries, I don't know, travelling through their bodies accidentally. (laughs) It was pretty bizarre, but yes, they had some science behind it. That's
1: amazing. Cool. Well, what else have we got up on this show? Um, Well, first (laughs) up, we're going to hear about the new legislation to protect the Yarra River and uh, the Yarra River Keeper. Andrew Kelly has joined us this morning in the studio. So welcome, Andrew.
0: Morning, Judith. Yeah. Morning, everybody. Yeah.
2: Morning.
1: So just, um, just <laughs> <laughs> sorry, just to introduce the name of the river, because I think that's really exciting. Um, the Yar, it's the Yarra River, per, river Protection Wulipjin Birirung Muron Act. And this is historic because it's the first time, and, and this is kind of sad as well, but it's the first time in Victoria Parliament that the Woiwurrung language of the Wurundjeri people appears in, a, in an act. And it also brings together a traditional owner knowledge with contemporary river and management techniques. So, so, Andrew, you must be extremely excited. And, of course, the Yarra River Keepers Association is one of the groups that's been very active in supporting this legislation. And um, so thank you for coming in. And, um, yeah, I understand you have a you don't have a cottage on the river, but you've got a boat.
0: I do, Judith. I have a boat on the river as part of my job. It didn't come with a car, but it came with a boat on our magnificent Yarra River. And interestingly, in terms of the bill, I understand it's the first bill in Australia that uses language other than English.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
0: Not only a first for Victoria, but a first for Australia.
1: Wow, that's that's fantastic. So perhaps if you could just tell us a little bit about the Yarra River Keeper Association, just to to get started before we talk about the bill, because I think some people haven't heard about it.
0: Uh, my pleasure. So we're, part, uh, we're, we're a group of citizen advocates who advocate for the Yarra River and also educate about the river. Mm-hmm. We, uh, interestingly, are a part of a, a worldwide alliance of water keepers. We have water keepers all over the world, more than 300. So that's a lovely thing to be part of. When but you we've say
1: 300, you mean 300 organisations, I'm assuming?
0: 300 yes. organisations. Yeah. We're kind of a franchise model. Okay,
1: so. <laughs> I see, I see.
0: Each of us represents our waterway. Uh, yeah. Each of us has a boat and each of us has an office on the river.
1: Excellent.
0: So, okay. on their river or their bay or their waterway.
2: Really, yeah. that's across the board, all 300 organisations?
0: Uh, well not everybody has all those features, but that's the ideal.
1: Ah, oh, beautiful. Okay.
0: So, and we've been, we started in Melbourne in 2005, uh, advocating for the era, And it's always been a major part of our platform that we have a One River Authority and an act for the Yarra.
1: Well, this must be such an exciting moment then for you. So just tell us a little bit about how it's come about. How long has it taken to get this legislation up? Uh,
0: well, it, uh, I guess it, the, I trace the source of it to beginning before the last election, uh, when my uh, predecessor Ian Penrose was the Yarra Riverkeeper, and I was on the committee, and we had an election subcommittee, and we got together, and Ian came up with eight points that we refined and worked on. And one of those was a Yarra River, uh, a One River Planning Authority (coughs) and uh, a Yarra Trust. Yes. So that was the beginning before the last election. I took over just before the election and we lobbied all sides of parliament, knocked on doors, emailed, wrote, phoned. And interestingly, the ALP took the the proposal up and put it in their environment policy. So then, of course, it's history that... uh, Uh, Daniel Andrews won government, and so they had this promise, and we were keen at that stage that they kept their promise, Uh, and I must say they have, um, quite obviously. Yes,
1: Uh, and it went through fairly quickly because it was introduced in June, was it not, in June this year, the legislation, or was it earlier?
0: uh, The... So there's been a bit of a process to it before that. So we, in the first year, we, we went into partnership with Environmental Justice Australia, mm-hmm. uh, Nature's Lawyers, a not-for-profit law firm. So uh, particularly Bruce Lindsay and I work closely together on this, uh, mm-hmm. lobbying for the, the Yarra River Protection Act, as it came to be called. But it takes a while for a new government to settle in. Yes. Uh, they, uh, it, it takes time, actually, to get legislation together because you want it to be good quality legislation. Yes, indeed. So yeah. the government um, appointed a reference group in December 2015, which was kind of the first real start, I think. Uh, oh, no, they, they actually put money aside in the budget in May of that year. Um, they uh, introduced a few uh, uh, changes to the State Planning Act also in December 2015, and they were the sort of small beginnings that eventually led to the Act. They appointed a very good ministerial advisory committee. I've learned a lot about legislation in the last three years, and the government can write the legislation, or they can form a ministerial advisory committee to advise them on what the legislation should be. my my good friends at Environmental Justice Australia are very keen on co-design, which means involving the community in writing the legislation. So uh, that was. I, I, in- and, and
1: how do you do that? Because that sounds like quite a an interesting process in, just in itself. How do you how did you involve the community?
0: Um, well, part of it was having the ministerial advisory committee. Uh, and they consulted with us and consulted with the community, ran a series of sessions Mm -hmm. and wrote a discussion paper which was circulated and called for submissions. At the same time, uh, Bruce and I were running community sessions and calling community groups in, having sessions uh, up in Carlton, actually, uh, and saying, well, what do you want for the river, as well as putting in our versions. And how
1: did the Wurundjeri people come in uh, to this process? Uh,
0: Well, my understanding of the process was that they were... uh, Asked to kind of comment, contribute by the department. And when that happened, they very much said, look, we have to be part of this project. We have to be partners in this project. Uh, it's our river. Um, we we want to be part of it. Right. And we want to be part of it in a significant way. Mm.
1: And And listening to the address to Parliament of the Wurundjeri people was very moving. Actually, you can see it online. I, I watched it in both in language and in English. Yeah, It, was it is very thing. moving. And I would note yeah. that
0: uh, this is the first time the uh, Wurundjeri have spoken on the floor of the House. It's very unusual for people to... Uh, for anybody who's not a, an elected member to be on in the uh, either the Assembly or the Council. So that was quite a major thing for the government to do. And I think it was bipartisan. I think both sides had to agree for those people to be on the floor. And I'd note that um, back in uh, the nineteenth century William Barrack, who was the, the senior elder of the Burundry mm. at the time, came to talk to Parliament and was turned away. So there's enormous I saw that. Emotional resonance, I think, mm.
1: and interesting. He's he's being celebrated at the opening of the Melbourne Festival this year. His life is he? Yes. So we'll, we'll hear a more, little more about that later. But now that the act is passed, just last Thursday, I think it was. That's right. What I mean, I imagine the real work is starting now. Well, it's well, just... well, not the re- well, real work, but the important work. I mean, getting it up, of course, was real work.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, it was. Um part of a larger piece of work, in fact, the, the the bill. So there was a lot of other things the government was okay. doing about the error, so that was fantastic. Yeah. Um,
1: so what kinds of things was the government doing already, even before the bill was passed?
0: Well, um, the government... Uh, so the Ministerial Advisory Committee recommended 30 points. And this was released in the Yarra River Action Plan in February this year. It's and a
1: beautiful plan, actually. Look at it. Just have a look. I just need to show everyone. There's wonderful sure. photos in the of the Yarra in it, and it really gives you a sense of, of the scope of the area you're working with. So, um, yeah, from, you know, from farmland through to, you know, the Fairfield Boathouse down to uh, the harbour. And yeah, it's great.
0: So it's a bold and... Uh, uh well, beautiful plan to me, yeah. uh, which includes a whole bunch of other stuff apart from the Act, but the Act is a crucial middle bit of it, the, the core of it, if you like. Right. And uh, a core part of the bill is actually Yarra Strategy Plan, which um, Melbourne Water has commenced work on. And a core part of the area Strategy Plan is the community vision. So that's the first part of the area Strategy Plan. The Arrow Strategy Plan is a 50-year Plan. So it's a long-term plan for the river mm. uh, and it will be renewed every 10 years. So it, it's great. got a lot of strong things happening in it and all government agencies will be obliged to consider the river and to comply with the strategy plan.
2: And what is the vision? What's uh, To get a sense of the vision, what has been outlined in it? Because I'm trying to grapple with um, what what is set because the Yarra River is so long and goes for so long and connect so many communities together so how is that vision is it a vision statement or what's gluing it all together with just maybe a sentence or a couple of words we don't have a vision
0: yet that's for the community to come up with a vision now so there's a a website Mm -hmm. imagine the au. so imagine the au, which i'd urge everybody to log on to and share their stories about the yarra there's a series of community consultations Uh, Melbourne Water has engaged a company to do social research about the Yarra, and so the vision will come out of that. Interestingly, the bill didn't say this is what we want for the Yarra. It said we want the community to come up with a vision for the Yarra.
2: That's great. That sounds like a very different way of doing things in a positive way. Obviously a lot more work, but it gets a lot more people involved in feeling empowered to create a vision or get an understanding of policy and how it works. That's right, and it also gives it a lot
0: more um strength if you like along the way so if the community is behind it it'll happen Mm. some bills some acts fall over because they don't kind of end up with community and government backing the department's backing but in this case i think we've got some really strong mechanisms to ensure that it really carries over those 50 years and gets renewed at the end of that for another 50 and then another 50 Uh, in terms of the environment we need long-term thinking
1: yeah, and it's it's great to hear that we're getting some of that. Yeah. So what if people are interested in becoming involved in some of these consultations, how can they find out about them? What should they do?
0: Uh, the best place to go to is imagine the mm-hmm.
1: and
0: log on there there's four community consultations for four reaches of the river. So they need to log on if they can attend one of those, there will be a survey. Uh, that will be up on that website. I don't think it's up quite yet, Uh, but they can also contribute their story to the... uh, There's a map there, and you can drop a pin and tell your story about the Yarra, what the Yarra means to you.
1: Okay, well... So I'd
0: urge people to get on the map and drop a pin.
1: And uh, uh, also the Birrarung Council that's been set up. What's going to be the role of that council?
0: Uh, Well, they'll be responsible for ensuring that the Yarra strategy plan's implemented, and they will report annually to the minister and the minister will have to table that uh, report in parliament. So that gives it transparency and it gives a, a, an independent review agency to ensure, well, not agency, but a, a, the Birrarung Council will be independent and able to review what people are doing along the Yarra uh, and then mm-hmm. report that to the minister to ensure that the Yarra strategy plan is being complied with. Okay. And two of those seats on the and Council uh, w- will be held by the Wurundjeri.
1: Yes. I saw that. That's great, too. Andrew, is there anything else you'd like to tell us that I haven't asked at this point about what's happening with the river?
0: Well, I just had a thought, Judith, that I did did want to say that the Yarra strategy plan will consult more broadly with uh, traditional owners. I mean, the much of the the era is Wurundjeri, but there are other mm-hmm. because of the cooler nation, uh, there's yes. a lot of people who do have an interest in in the era. A lot of traditional owners outside the immediate catchment have a lot of interest. Uh, the era was a central meeting place, so the uh, lead agency, Melbourne Water, will consult with a broad range of indigenous Australian groups who have an interest in the era.
1: Yes, and I think uh, one of the ideas is keeping the Yarra alive is one of the key ideas that's come from the Wurundjeri people around this plan.
0: That's right, and my understanding is that Willop Jin Birurung Moron is keep the Birrung alive, yeah. the Birurung being the actual name of the river. Uh, Yarra was a, a mishearing by an early explorer.
1: Oh, really? <laughs> the
0: true name
2: of the river is the Birrung.
1: The Bururung, well, we might start calling it that. <laughs>
2: I think we should. And I wanted to ask you one question, Andrew. What, what's your role? Do you get to go up and down on your boat rather than the car <laughs> yes. on the Bururung?
0: I do. That's exactly right. So I'm out on the river once a week. Uh, the, the concept is, for my organisation, is that you have somebody who's really out on the river and builds up a strong understanding. And it's also important to take other people out on the river to show them the river. So uh, Melbourne looks very different from the Yarra River. Of course, I can only go to Dights Falls, but I'm regularly elsewhere, not on my boat, but in a (laughs) kayak or on foot, (laughs) all over the river, up and down.
2: Oh, Uh, good to hear. So community should look out for you. Yes. uh, Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks thanks for coming in.
1: And uh, we'll probably have you back again in a while to hear a little more about the progress.
2: I'd be delighted to come on.
6: Thank you. Thanks, Andrew.
2: Thank you. You're tuned to 3CR Wednesday
4: Breakfast.
6: From every corner of the land, womankind
5: arise!
6: Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. never you fear!
5: Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security.
7: We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to
6: have a say over our country is our line. Women on the Line. Tune
5: in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Yes.
1: What else have we got
3: coming up this morning, Judith?
1: Well, you know, last Tuesday, I don't know if, if you noticed, about the uh, Obesity Policy Coalition called on federal and state governments to set re- restrictions on television food advertising to children. So, I mean, we've been hearing these calls for quite a long time now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was part of their new obesity prevention plan called Tipping the Scales. So, while this, con- this concern certainly isn't new, and two years ago I spoke to Associate Professor Kay Mehta, who's now Head of Nutrition and Dietetics at Flinders University, about her research with parents and children. She this as part of her PhD. And I discovered that just how long public health advocates have been raising this issue.
7: So it was a very natural transition to do a PhD on that and really bring the the voice of parents and children into that policy debate. So the methodology was qualitative. I interviewed parents and children about their awareness of food marketing on those platforms or media that children Use, so internet games, video games that children play with, children's magazines, the schools, sporting clubs. When you did the interviews, did you interview the parents and the children separately or together? I interviewed them separately, about a week apart. And I interviewed the parents first so that the parents would have an idea about the nature of the interview. And the questions were quite similar to the children. I wanted their views on the same thing, really. So one parent, one child from uh, each family, they were often evening interviews, but I interviewed metropolitan and rural families, and the rural interviews were by telephone. In terms of awareness of marketing, parents were, were, were not very aware at all about marketing on these new media, and children were more aware depending on their engagement with the media. So if they played more internet games, they were more aware. If they regularly subscribe to children's magazines and they were more aware. In part, the parents and children actually acknowledged what the literature says, which is that if you're mostly, if you're engaging with something for one reason, you may not be aware of messages that come in for another reason. So, f- for example, even the children said that they were playing computer games because they were interested in the computer game and they may not be aware that they were being marketed to, that The computer game was actually owned by a food company. The icons they were moving were were symbols of that brand and it's kind of subliminal, subconscious exposure to marketing messages in that way. So I became really interested as the PhD progressed with ethical issues really, so the ethics of stealth marketing or marketing below a person's cognitive radar because I interviewed them twice in the second interview, explored that a lot more and found that parents were really concerned about stealth marketing through the internet and the fact that many children now, Australian children, have a computer in their bedroom and a video console in their bedroom, then not only is the marketing below the children's radar, cognitive radar, because the children are intent on the game, but it's below the parents' radar because the parents are not in the same space that the children are in. So parents were very concerned about that. They were also concerned about the tracking of children's data. Internet marketing collects information from children. Almost all the computer games have the children join clubs, so they're collecting their demographics. They're also involving children in viral marketing, so all the games say, Send to a friend. One click of the button, it goes out to a whole lot of people, and the children are acting as marketers themselves and passing this information on. So parents and children were very concerned about marketing on the Internet. The other area that both parents and children uh, were concerned about was um, the explosion of marketing through product packaging. So there's been a lot more marketing to children through child-specific products. Can you give an example of that? If you look at the yogurt aisle, you'll see packaging generally themed around some program, a television program. So at the time that I was doing the work, it was Dora the Explorer and Bob the Builder. And an interesting side idea, which is that the genderization of food products, you know, parents talked about their girl child wanting the Dora the Explorer and their boy child wanting Bob the Builder. And for parents on low incomes, those little packages of yogurts cost more than a a kilogram tub. But they felt their children really wanted those. And, and of course, children want those um, child-oriented packaging. Was wanting those things part of them fitting into their peer group? Yes, there was a lot of data around peer acceptance and the importance of brands. And I I gave the children a, a couple of sort of scenarios of they were going to a friend's party and they had to bring something. Would they bring branded or an unbranded product? And at school, would they feel more comfortable bringing a branded or unbranded product? Children almost universally said that for peer acceptance for not being laughed at I'm using my words not theirs but not being marginalized and for their own popularity they would choose branded products every time. So that's quite a powerful effect it's having on children's lives. The whole commodification of children's lives children are very much seen as consumers and they bring a lot of money into the marketplace. Children are increasingly getting more of their own money, but also they're very powerful through their second-hand buying power, pestering parents to buy products in all sorts of commodity areas, clothing, toys and games, but also food. They are being really pitched to by industries, and and the brands are the way to do that. And now that you've completed your PhD, what do you take from it? We have not had any real substantial policy development in this area to protect children. So that's 20 years of children's growing exposure to unhealthy food marketing. Brave public policy is quite difficult to bring into practice. Many politicians are risk averse and are not confident that the community is behind them. I'm increasingly interested in how to bring the community's voice much stronger in policy debate. What proportion of the community is concerned
1: about advertising marketing to children? Have you some idea of that?
7: Yes, in fact, there's been quite a number of surveys done by particularly the health department. So SA Health has done research, but also New South Wales Health and Vic Health. And they find that somewhere in the order of 85 to 90% of the population is concerned about unhealthy food marketing to children and would like to see tighter regulations and sees the government as the main group responsible for bringing in these regulations. What is the government then afraid of if the community appears to be behind or at
1: least concerned about the issue?
7: I think it's a complex problem. Perhaps another view about policy making is is that politics is the art of compromise between interest groups and the community constitutes an interest group and food industry and and the marketing industry and the media industries constitute an interest group. And certainly that group has strongly opposed restrictions on their practices from day one. So from 2002, when this issue first entered the public policy debate, the food industry has been very strongly um, opposing any restrictions to food marketing to children. And I think governments, in the end are beholden to industry for the economic wealth that they bring into the country. Policy debates often come down to money. What do health problems cost? What do health solutions cost? What I'd like to see is that ethics and fairness and and justness and and what kind of society do we want also enters the debate. So that I would like to see from the research that I've done that we can... Talk to the community about what what sort of society they want beyond money to issues of, of fairness. And in producing a healthy society, what will we need to do that? A longer term view about what kind of healthy and well and ethical society we want.
1: And, and again, we hear about the need for a longer-term view. And that was Associate Professor Kay Mehta from Flinders University. And it seems, again, it's like democracy up against corporate interests. And uh, democracy's not doing so well if, mm. uh, you know, that high level of people support, yeah. uh, you know, uh, change to the way av- uh, food's advertised to children. So um, We were just
4: talking before. I mean, has advertising changed much? You said basically on TV, because I know it's become a big issue. I mean... Um, well,
1: Well, as Kay points out, it's not just television now. You know, it's it's computer games and... uh Often the children don't even realize that there's food advertising involved, so it's very subliminal. Mm, they so can, yeah, go on. Sorry. Oh, sorry, there
3: can be something a bit two-faced about the uh, way that this argument plays out in the public, um, because uh, at, at the moment we're also um, talking about other uh, other methods of, of bringing down obesity, and um, one of the things that often gets brought up brought up by the by the companies that want to maintain Uh, this is that, well, you know, people have the choice. People have the ability to, you know, change station if they don't want to see that advertising and and these sorts of things. But that, that feels like a two-faced argument because they're almost saying advertising doesn't work. Advertising actually does Advertising only works if you want it to work, but that's not true. No, they I mean, wouldn't spend no, that much
1: money on it. I mean, it wouldn't be Im- a
3: huge billion-dollar industry across the yes. world. And
4: it's really like infiltrating everywhere that we are. I was having exactly. a conversation on the weekend round a fire. <laughs> oh, lovely. Nice. <laughs> um, I'm in an ad pop. <laughs> and <laughs> you were talking about politics. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and we were just talking about uh, people were having a private conversation in their home about a very specific thing. I, I can't remember what it was, but very specific. And then all of a sudden later, you know, a couple days later, they started getting pop-ups through their phone. Like not pop-ups, but little things maybe through Spotify or different
1: accounts yes. where
4: this advertising for this particular thing started showing up and they're like, I didn't even do a Google search for that. That, yes. was, a, that was a conversation. Yeah, I've had that happen. It's really?
1: Scary. Well, it's, mostly when I like travel, travel things, listening. if I've looked up, you know, the price of hotels somewhere, all of a sudden I get these, you know, airlines telling yeah. me that I can get a good, good I think
3: I I wonder with that whether or not, because it seems unethical and i'm sure that i've read around um that it's probably not actually happening that our devices are listening to us without any consent they are are, but i don't think advertisers um can use i don't think people can access that i think what happens is Mm. people forget that they have done a little google search it's very easy to forget these things I'm forgetful. but uh (laughs) i'm suggesting we're all forgetful a lot more forgetful (laughs) than we give ourselves credit for
4: but the phones are listening because that's the point of siri
3: yeah, well, you can turn that off. <laughs>
4: yeah, I know that. um yeah.
3: but it, yeah. I don't know well, if what they about can sell those
2: apps. I know that you um, accept certain terms and conditions, and certain apps actually sell that data and that information. Yeah, so I'm just wondering well, if they're dragging maybe this is something a, we
3: should try to get to the bottom of, find with, out if yeah. it is legal for. Follow us on Wednesday breakfast. If, if my phone <laughs> is Camp
2: sitting here, the radio, yes. We will get to the yeah. bottom of this.
1: But, but you know what really worries me about this two face thing is that so much of the policy debate is. Uh, on, you know, parents need to change, children need to change. This
3: is the neoliberal mantra. It's That's the individual, right. yes. the individual that can make the well, difference. Well, how about the Community doesn't exist. Let's send
1: the corporations <laughs> to education programs, shall we? Instead of the poor kids. Okay. Yeah, anyway. But um, mm.
2: before we go any further, we must pay <laughs> respect to Nibs who helped support this station.
1: And Nibs is? Breakfast would
8: like to say thanks to program sponsor the new international bookshop, for the financial support of this program, you can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton.
4: Hello? Listen,
0: I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus
3: hairy-legged feminist. You're still a
4: feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman.
0: The battle you've all been waiting to see. The battle of the sexes.
3: You want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Withcast Cinemas, 89 High Street, North on Thursday, October 5th from 6.30pm for a screening of Battle of the Sexes. You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the
1: women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology.
4: <laughs> the story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs.
3: Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au, direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 Eight three seven seven during business hours.
4: All funds raised go to keeping three CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening Thursday, October
7: the fifth,
5: from six thirty p.m. (laughs) (laughs) Call Barbie. Tom, it's on.
4: Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> You're listening to Three CR Wednesday Breakfast, 27th of September, and um, we're getting quite heated in the in the house here about advertising. But up next, um, we've got a an awesome interview um, by Andreas Harsono from um, Human Rights Watch. is an expert in the LGBTQI issues in Indonesia and specifically on um, criminalisation of homosexual people in Aceh's province. Three um, CRs, James McKenzie. Spoke with him about human rights for LGBTQI people in Indonesia, and here is that conversation.
9: Because in Aceh, there is a bylaw which criminalizes homosexuality. If a gay couple or a lesbian couple got arrested, the penalty is maximum 100 lashes. It happened quite a lot over the last two years, uh, since this new law was becoming effective in September 2015. So it is almost two years now. Every day, every day, we receive reports about LGBT individuals being harassed, intimidated, their ID card being checked, or uh, sometimes even uh, beaten Sometimes, in worst cases, of course, they are arrested and charged if they were found of having what the Sharia police call a sexual act, homosexual act. So it, it is very, very bad. And many, many, many transgender, especially because of their physical appearances, are running away from Aceh.
8: You spoke to the two young men that were caned recently. How traumatized are they? Very, I would imagine.
9: Uh, first is the physical physical, uh, cut, uh, the cut on their back. Each of them got 83 lasses. They were also forcibly to take HIV test uh, and turn out to be positive. Now they have to take medication. They have to run away from the bandage axis. They have to... Go away from their one from their job, another one from their school. Uh, he stopped schooling, and they are now staying with with their parents in other places on Sumatra Island. One is a sailor; the other one is a medical student who stopped his his degree. <clears throat> but things are very bad, and of course they are also traumatized. I would like to say that they are also sometimes acting strange. They are paranoia. They are afraid that people new people who they meet might know what happened to them uh, since May this year.
8: Why aren't any Aceh politicians speaking out against conditions for GLBTI people in Aceh?
9: Actually, I talked to some politicians there, including former Free Aceh Movement guerrilla uh, leaders, uh, those that are sane enough they told me this is extremely difficult. They might lose their their foot, their seat, if they are speak up against the discrimination uh, of the LGBT people. Those who are insane, of course, immediately recite the Quran, recite Islam, etc., et blah, 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 blah. Uh, but even the Jakarta government, the national government, refused to review all of those, discriminatory regulation. In fact, in Indonesia now, there are 421 local regulations which discriminate minorities, including LGBT people, including mostly against women. There are mandatory hijab for women in 129 regencies, I think, and also curfew at night against women. uh, Some places after 9 p.m., some places after 10, 11, midnight. So those regulations are against Indonesia's national law, and they should be revoked. But again, the central government dare not to do that.
8: Indonesia is awaiting a court decision about legalities regarding consensual sex between adults in Indonesia. What are the implications of the court case for the GLBTI community?
9: We are still waiting for the court decision. We hope that the judges will be sane enough not to agree with that.
8: What what, what could they potentially rule?
9: Uh, they basically rule that any consensual out-of-marriage sex is a crime. It covers, of course, homosexual sex as well, because gay marriage is not recognised under Indonesian law. The the only recognized one is hetero marriage, hetero sex marriage. It means if this article to be approved by the court it will implicate not only hetero couples but basically all gay couples. This is going to be a huge, huge setback for Indonesia. It might take decades, if not century, to undo it. So I hope those judges, nine judges, will come to their mind being logical and not agreeing with this decision.
8: Is the situation in Indonesia for the GLBTI people a result of religious nationalism increasing?
9: Yes. Uh, Since the fall of President Suharto in 1998, there are open spaces for Islamist politicians, Islamist activists, for Sharia supremacists to campaign for of course the ideas. Sometimes they also promote violence, sometimes they use only social pressure, sometimes they do street rallies, which are of course legal. But what happened over the last twenty years is that Indonesia is becoming more and more conservative. Indonesia is becoming more and more targeting against two types of minorities. One is religious minorities, whether they are non Muslim minorities, including Christian, proportionately, Christian is the biggest minority in Indonesia, or against Muslim minorities like the Ahmadiyya, the Shia, the Sufi, more than 200 Muslim minorities are also being targeted inside Indonesia. And the third is local religion, traditional religion, uh, ethnic religion inside Indonesia. There are hundreds of them. So that is the first target of the discrimination by the Islamists. The second is gender minorities, and they are again women and LGBTIQ people.
8: Andres, as everyone knows, we're in the middle of a same-sex marriage debate here in Australia. Senator Bernardi at the No campaign launch claimed recently that uh, the Yes vote, if successful, could damage Australia's relationship with Asia. What's your response to that?
9: No, I don't think so. If the Yes campaign is to win, and I hope it is to win, it will give an example to countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam is quite progressive. Thailand is also quite progressive. It will give uh, an example that Australia can do that. Australia can be on their, you know, logic on their mind. Uh, those people cannot argue against uh, marriage equality by saying according to the Quran or according to the Bible because not everyone believes their interpretation of the Quran or their interpretation of the Bible or whether or whatever, Tripitaka book. Uh, so if they want to argue against People who do not share the same belief, like it or not, they have to go into, you know, mental health, uh, physical fitness, et cetera, et cetera, And like it or not, they have to admit that this year's campaign is much more advanced. The argument is more scientific than the no campaign.
8: Andreas Hosano, thank you so much for joining me on 3CR today. Much appreciated.
9: Thank you.
4: That was, Human Rights, Andre- Let's go again. that was Human Rights Watch, Andreas Hasono, speaking with James McKenzie from 3CR's In Your Face program. And you can listen to In Your Face on 3CR's uh, Friday at 4pm um, for more things on the LGBTQI community.
2: It's been a bumpy ride, but we're still riding.
1: <laughs> we are. We've got we have, have, in- <laughs> <laughs>
2: We've got have in the studio who's co-created a beautiful graphic novel that's been sending me to sleep but (laughs) keeping me awake for a little bit too long of the night because I've been flicking through and being stopping on the images. It's a novel that's been co-created by the two and it seems like it's come about through certain interactions of support, love and friendship. And I think it's also had a lot of correspondence as how the material's come about. But welcome, Tav, and thank Thank you. you so much for coming in.
6: Pleasure. Thank you.
2: Um, could you Am I right in my assumption that a lot of this has come through correspondence, the, the base material?
6: Yes and no. <laughs> so the idea for the work came through correspondence. So at the time I was based in Canada and my best friend Alice Chipkin, who I co-created the novel with, was in Australia. And the previous year we'd been living together while I had gone through my heaviest, heaviest period yet – And I'd meant to go away for six weeks and then said, hey, I'm actually not coming back. Um, And it was clear to her that things were still playing out for me. So she suggested, would you be interested in doing a a pen pal project through making comics? Um, We both love comics and have, have shared that for a while. And I was like, yeah totally and it became abundantly clear very quickly that what we would be focusing on was how I was trying to deal with my emotional landscape and how that was impacting her as my best friend and, and one of my primary carers. Um, so we started doing a few sketches independently mapping out pages taking really dodgy photos on iPhones and sending them to each other and then it was it was very fractured um, and disjointed, mostly because of, I think, where the place that I was in. So she came up with the idea that she would meet me in Canada and we would spend a month together creating this work, which was, at that point, mostly therapeutic tool. No, no intention to publish or share. So the bulk of the content emerged when we finally got together, Um, for that intensive month and we started just working. I guess my strategy for working was I kind of had an idea of what were the key things I wanted to go into and I I started writing a bit of a a script, Mm. Um, whereas I think Alice was a little bit more chop and change. um, And we worked in isolation for the first two weeks before we showed each other anything that we had created. Uh, so. So, so this is an amazing project. I, I'm very excited hearing
1: about it. Can <laughs> you, you? So how did you um, share the work? Like, are you both artists? Did you both create the artwork? Or did one person do that and another person did the,
6: the kind of dialogue? No, so we both created everything for our own sections and the way the book is structured Mm. is that it oscillates between our two voices we hand over to each other which is literally symbolized with a hand Um, hopefully to Mm. increase clarity that that's what's happening the the
2: aesthetic is quite seamless except you've both done different drawings and illustrations yeah the black and white holds them both together so that hand is really beautiful to know who's speaking but not be super clear but still um, allow you to engage in your imagination, who's talking and how it works.
6: yeah been. we've had we've had um, I think mixed responses, some people who have said, "Oh, I didn't realize that that there was two, and it was in a, and to me, that's kind of shocking. I'm like, really? How?
1: <laughs> that there I, were two people And yeah, how could you
6: not have realized our to me, our mm. aesthetic, our drawing styles, our written words, everything is so different. but I think that there's been quite a few people who have never read a graphic novel before. I was going before. to say it's a new, a kind of new idea. Yeah. Very
1: exciting. Yeah. I mean, there's just such great, so many great ones out there now, but still a lot of people aren't used to them, so. Mm. Yeah.
6: So perhaps that um, mm. unfamiliarity makes it mm. a little bit less clear.
2: And just that format of a book, there's, it's not often very, you get a book that's co-authored or co-created where... <laughs> each individual is, or the two or whoever's taken part have each done their separate pieces and yeah. it's not all been written by one, say, verbally and the other types it up.
6: Yeah, I think we were... When this project began to take a, a bit more of a publishable, publishable form, that was something that we felt pretty cool. <laughs> it was a pretty cool aspect of this because neither one of us, I think, I can definitely speak for myself, perceived ourselves as artists prior to this Um, Like I had done a bit of writing and some like zine making and Ali had done some graphic novel work as part of her uni course and created a small mini comic, but nothing really on a bigger scale. So when we realised that this was the shape it was taking and that we couldn't really look to any other work that had done this before – that was something that was pretty cool um, and i think
1: the authenticity of the experience that you're speaking from mm. to me that that is very strong and uh, so and so bringing your skills and um, your experience uh, together with that it it sounds so good <laughs> <laughs> thank you yes yeah.
2: there's, there's an image in there that i'm trying to remember and it was i think it's you to have drawing um, a shadow and mm. carrying that shadow around and that shadow lives long in my memory as a bit of the protagonist that holds your work together hmm. um, but I feel like it's very brave of you to and both of you to lay this out and an important work to lay out because I think a lot of people similar age or anyone who experiences mental illness or mental difficulties it's hard to open that conversation and how to talk about it in the right way and is there a right way and I think Definitely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think what you've done in this work is really cool, and demonstrate that over a long period of time. And also, mm-hmm. as you say, allow people into the work because it's graphic. It's not saying this is the right, this is it.
6: Yeah, and that's awesome that you said all of the, all of those things because that's all stuff that we were, um, I guess, really thinking deeply about when we decided to share this with the wider world. And in in a large part of um, of that process was just realizing the gaps in our own experience. So when I was in the thick of it, I had turned to art um, in both written form, drawn form music, and struggled to find narratives that connected with someone of my age. um, And also that focused on the way that it impacts your relationships. And because as much as it's such a difficult experience to go through within yourself and your body, and you've got all of these different thoughts and feelings swirling within you, I think for me one of the the hardest things about it was that all of that really influenced my ability to engage with the people that I loved, and that's where a lot of the suffering came from, because I couldn't be the friend I wanted to be, or the daughter, or the housemate. It was those relational strains that really impacted me and um and so us having this conversation in dialogue is the person going through it and everything I feel about wanting to withdraw but also feeling terrible about that and from Ali's perspective of wanting to be there but hey I've never felt this am I saying the right thing am I doing the right thing so that is something we wanted to capture because I just I just, yeah, I don't think that that's emphasized enough. Yes, and I'm sure people who
1: are going through similar experiences, and I, I know there would be many, yeah. would really uh, find your, your book. You know, they would take heart from that. They would recognize it. They would feel supported by it and, and that they're not alone. So I think this is a real benefit for lots of people.
6: hope so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but to take so. the time to
1: document it and make it available. Yeah, that's important.
2: I feel. Yeah, it's good that it is getting a bit of coverage because you first published it together solo, didn't you? And now yeah. it's being picked up by Echo Publishing.
6: Yeah, that's correct. So we, um, there's a very generous community of comic makers in Melbourne. Um, a lot of this came together because so many people were so lovely to us in gave us heaps of pointers and, and really encouraged us to go down the self publishing route, which is another cool thing about comics is that it has that grassroots mm. feel to it. You, All you need is a pen, paper and a photocopier mm. and you got a book, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, and you can get a bit more complicated yes. um, <laughs> yes. for sure. But the it's that kind of like anyone can do this. And, and as I don't know. Is like queer kids and DIY. Like, yeah, let's give this a go. That really fit for us. Um, so we got a lot of help in terms of of people reading the work and giving us the validation. Yes, this is good. You can improve here. We got. Isn't our... that wonderful to it's... get that feedback? Um, How is it valuable? Ah, uh, isn't so humbling and it's so nice when the people you really respect, the comic makers that you look up to, and people in the industry mm-hmm. are giving you feedback and saying, yeah. Like, go for it. You need to work, but go for it. (laughs) Um, So we went through that redrafting, refining. So took the body of work, which was, I guess, just a conversation between Alice and I, um, and then started to think more strategically about, okay, this is a narrative. What are our gaps in the narrative? What are our themes? How do we create, I guess, more of a body of work, which is never going to encapsulate everything, um, I always feel like I need to flag that because, like, <laughs> you know, you create a book about yourself and then you're like, this is a small part of myself yes. and it yes. emphasises mine and Alice's relationship, but there were many other people there um, of which I'm so still humbled and grateful for. So, yeah, we started that process, um, managed to rope in a brilliant friend of ours, um, Emma Jensen, who who came on board as... Uh, like, full-time editor, if you will. Um, and then all the technical stuff began, which admittedly I was terrible at and Alice carried the bulk of, so I have to give her mm, that credit. That's why we have teams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Just working creatively is one thing, but then the administration oh, yes. is a whole other thing. Like, yeah. we had... <laughs> no idea barcodes and (laughs) formatting for the document and just like looking at printers and the cost of things and what paper and what ink and everything (laughs) exploded and we're like is anyone even going to be interested in buying this? So crowdfunding and setting up a crowdfunder and making a video for the crowdfunder and feeling so... Oh what, like, what a process. Yeah, oh, They
1: must have learned so
6: much. Oh, look, hard to say. I think if we ever, <laughs> if we ever do it again, maybe we can see like, oh, yeah, we learned. Well, maybe we'll just do all the same mistakes again. Who knows? Um, As an yeah. expat Canadian, I just have to ask, mm. where in Canada did you meet? Uh, so I was living on Vancouver Island, oh, um, but we nice. we set up shop um, on this incredible organic farm on Salt Spring Island. They okay. had a one of those old school buses that Sue, the main farmer, had lived in for five years, so it was stripped on the inside and had, like... A double bed and a table and a small kitchen, and it was just in this little cove uh, surrounded by blackberry bushes. It was a little bit too
1: (laughs) serene. (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) Mm
6: -hmm. We
1: couldn't quite believe that area. So stunning, yeah. Yeah. yeah, West coast of Canada, Mm. yeah. Well
2: I couldn't recommend reading the book or looking through the book anymore. Um, if this conversation <laughs> hasn't helped you, wanna pick up that book and you can get it at Readings, can't you, Tab? Yeah, oh, and definitely lots of great. Lots of different bookstores. And yeah. the
6: title again. So the title is Eyes Too Dry.
1: Eyes Too
7: Dry.
6: Um, yeah. Nice. And it's yeah. also available Australia wide, so mm.
1: <laughs> Well
2: done. You have learned well you've you've done very well to get it out that far. Right? <laughs> I'm very brave. Thanks so much, Tav, for coming in.
6: Thanks so much for having me.
2: You're on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Up next, we've got some alternative news. But right now, we'll hear from some other programs that run throughout the week.
0: Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join
6: Sally on Sundays at noon
0: for Out of the Pan.
4: And you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, Paddy, Nick, Judith, and myself, Kate. And we were just chatting to Tav about her body of work, Eyes Too Dry. dry, Yeah, Yeah, super awesome. And to keep with that kind of alternative or progressive news, um, we... We've been kind of running the last few weeks a couple of things with Melbourne Free University and Laneway Learning. And this week we're talking to Henry Churchill. He's the co-founder of the Weekly Service, which is a community organisation that hosts weekly talks in Thornbury, my my neck of the woods. And um, hi, Henry. Are you there?
10: I I, I am. Hi, hi Kate. Thanks for having me.
4: Good morning. Thanks for chatting to us. Good morning. So can you just tell us a little bit more about the weekly service and I guess what kind of topics you guys cover and and host?
10: Yeah, sure. So um, we're a community of people. We get together every Saturday morning, 11 a.m. at a beautiful amphitheatre in Thornbury at Nesco Working. And um, at its essence, it's a space to come together and take our masks off uh so we go through life being very busy um often not being our authentic selves and it's a space to just kind of come in, slow down, and ask some big questions and explore um explore some issues that are relevant to us so some of the some of the talks um they're they're really diverse um and they you know recent talks include um a conversation about belonging, what it means to belong in an urban centre and what community means. Um, we've had talks on uh the healing power of connections, so um we had a we had a guy Jimmy, come in who um, had a, um, has a very addictive personality and he's addicted to, to meth mm-hmm. and his his um experience of um connecting with other people and how community helped him through that um we've had talks on resilience um, things like um, gardening and permaculture. And voluntary simplicity, um, so a whole range and diversity. Super
4: range, yeah, that's amazing. It yeah. came to me because um, uh, my friend Adam Hickman did a did a talk with mm, you guys. I think on tiny, crisis. On crisis. Yeah, uh, in yeah. Tiny homes fantastic. and living sustainably and self sufficient. Yeah, oh,
10: yeah, that's right. Yeah,
4: yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Awesome. What's been like one of your most maybe surprising um, surprising topics that got quite a lot of interest?
10: Yeah, so um the way the weekly services run is that uh uh our community kinda come along um regardless of the content really. They they kinda come along because they know that the, the type of form and the type of content will be asking those questions. So we we regularly get um between fifty and ninety people coming on a Saturday regardless of the the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think I think for me one of the ones that really stood out was um the service on resilience. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is because it was a, it was just a, a beautiful, beautiful story of um, uh, a friend of mine, Caro, who um, was dealing or had dealt with an alcoholic mother and her story of childhood uh, around alcoholism, but also more recently being quite a serious car crash and um, being kind of permanently hindered because of that car crash. And her story was about being resilient and not... Um, Resilient in terms of I must get through this. I must be strong. But resilient because she was relying completely on the, the community around her to support her. So it's a really beautiful message. So so that was really profound for me. The other bit that was so profound is that I I know Caro well and she's a close friend. But I had no idea about that particular particular story. Of her, so it's a really beautiful dimension to a to a friend of mine that you know. Usually in life, when you're out having a few beers or coffees or trying to get get to the bottom of news feed on Facebook, you, you don't sort of get there. Um, but um, it was just very beautiful to hear that story.
1: Yeah, awesome. Sounds super interesting. Yeah, th- I mean it is amazing, and I think the numbers of people you're attracting is terrific too for um, mm. a community education event
10: yeah it is and it's it's been um a, a sort of slow growth so myself and the other co founder founder cam set it up in twenty fifteen and uh it was just an it was just an idea um we wanted to g- gather people around ideas of social justice and ideas of freedom and we we set up the space um at the beginning it was often just cam and I and a few close friends.
1: Mm-hmm. But we just, we yes. just,
10: we just, we were just very clear and said, um, "We'll be here every Saturday, at eleven o'clock in the morning. You're invited to come along." And over time, just uh, the essence of, of, of what it is and uh, has really sort of drawn people towards it. Um, uh, awesome. So that's been really interesting to watch.
4: Henry, tell us where we can, um, like, how much is it? You've sort of mentioned where and when. So it's Saturday, every Saturday at eleven. Um, right. Thornbury, whereabouts again?
10: Uh, it's at Nesco Working Space. So there's um so if you were to Google Nesco Working Space, you'll get the address, but it's eight hundred and twenty nine A High Street in Thornbury. Awesome. Um, and we'll Saturday post that
4: night. on our socials. Um and yeah. is it, is it f- free or what's the cost? Is this sort of community membership or
10: Yeah, so um it's fifteen bucks uh on the door to awesome. come, um, or a concession of five bucks. We also have a membership program as well where you can sign up to be a member and then it's free to come.
4: Great. Henry, thank you so much for talking to us this morning.
10: Thanks so much. Great. Lovely to talk to you.
4: Bye. Cheers. Cheers. And now up next, um, quite a big topic. We're going to hear a new song, but um, July 2016, over a year ago, um, Four Corners reported on the atrocities of Don Dondale Detention Centre in the Northern Territory. Um, the national outcry prompted the announcement of a Royal Commission to investigate these issues. What we've seen is this Royal Commission has been delayed three times. Um, It was meant to come out this month and we should now expect it in November. The motive for this might be that it's going to get washed under, you know, the Christmas and all of the things that happen at the end of the year. And so in light of that and to bring that back to recognition and to keep this conversation happening, we need this Royal Commission, um, a new music group, Spinifex Gum. It is led by Felix Riebel and Ollie McGill, who are from the Cat Empire and they have released a debut single. It's called Locked Up, and it features the Aussie rapper Briggs and an all-female Indigenous choir, Malia. Here's Felix Riebel introducing that track. Hi, this is Felix from Spinifex Gum. This track, Locked Up, is about the disproportionate rate and treatment of Indigenous youths in detention. It features Marley of Gondwana Choirs, a brilliant group of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait female singers, and Briggs, one of the artists I respect most in Australia, who's been advocating on this issue for a long time. The voice you hear at the end is Senator Patrick Dodson. We wanted to be as politically direct as we could with this track, but also celebrate the young singers involved and the youth and joy that they bring to the Spinifex gum sound. Check it out.
3: in the system findings reports and royal commissions number statistics when they're making decisions assess uh, the risks and build another prison got a license for recovery under stars because this is need feeling and they need another guard who's lighting their path when they're frightened in the dark they go spit hooks. understood that it's what they're wrong expect them to act when they get told they're no good stand them in line and you make them go laugh While they're choking on dust, blow it up, throw it up. Have our name on the frame, say they know it's us. I tell them where I'm at naked. follow me. Remember that their kid's not a campaign policy. I select the individual, separate from the family. Physics and interviews, maximum punishment. Rehab is minimal. Treat them
9: like that, yet just making better criminals.
4: morning 3CR Wednesday breakfast we're still riding that bumpy ride but we're riding and we're going strong um that was a powerful track locked up by the new spinifex gum and highlights the disproportionate rate and sickening treatment of indigenous youth in juvenile detention you can hear it everywhere YouTube Spotify SoundCloud all the things and next up Paddy we have
2: we have Leslie Guy in the studio who's a lecturer in media and communications at Swinburne University who can maybe give us a tip or two here at Tracy radio Radio. Um, thanks for joining us, Lisa. We appreciate it. No I hear worries. that you got here on the e-bike this morning. I
5: did. It's my first commute on the new e- converted e-bike. It was very exciting.
2: Which is new to me. An e-bike is that battery-converted yeah. um, battery, e- battery converted bike, so you don't have to use all yeah. your pedal power. It's like a You use some scooter. of your pedal power, oh, okay. but... but
5: You've, you become a super person, uh, yeah, <laughs> when you pedal. <laughs> and there's a throttle for when you can't be bothered pedalling as well. So it's pretty cool.
2: That's beautiful. I saw someone hooning around on a scooter this morning um, in their vest off to work with such a happy, free grin. It was great. I well, that
5: yeah, that it's the all the freedom and beauty of riding a bike without too much of the effort, which is kind of when you're getting to my age, you know, it's kind of cool to not have to put pedals so hard.
2: And am I right, you've been teaching at Swinburne University in the communications sector since 1993?
5: I have actually since 1991. Wow. I know.
2: That's truly amazing. Like, you would have seen so much change in that area, not only the way you teach, but. Yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. I I started off teaching radio because I was really interested in, because I'm, I mean, I'm kind of, my background is politics, and media for me was always just a way to talk about politics. So.
3: Were you working alongside Jim Barber? I was, oh, well, yeah. There you go. yeah. So Jim Barber is uh for, for anyone that's done radio school at Swinburne, he's the, the man that um, that the taught us radio I went through that course. Yeah. Not not that long ago. Well
5: I taught I taught the undergrad version of um, what Jim was doing, but um, as you would know, in around ninety three the internet came in and I was like, Wow, radio with pictures <laughs> like <laughs> this is cool. And so I taught myself how to um, code and and just saw that as another platform to be able to, you know, let people express themselves and, and um, yeah, it, it didn't quite work out the way I imagined it would work out. Nothing ever does, but it's still, for me, you know, media is still primarily for me about giving people voice, you know, mm-hmm. letting them speak.
2: And how have you seen that change coming from, like, radio with no pictures to radio with pictures and then social media coming in and lots of different changes, um... Has it been a big change, or is the core principle still the same?
5: Look, I think the part of the difficulty is like with any medium once it becomes corporatized. Which, you know, in the early nineties and the mid nineties, there were a lot of us that were really, really excited about the potential of the internet for um, flattening out social hierarchies, and and there there still is, you know, obviously a lot of potential for that. But a lot of the work that gets done in media on the internet these days. Um, goes via these very corporate platforms um, like Facebook and Twitter and you know tw- I mean Twitter's slightly different it did start out as a um, a platform for organizing you know for for um, uh, particularly around occupy and and uh, the world trade center um, protests but it became corporatized like so many of those mediums do so I think that's the difficulty that we're in now is that we're that there's still enormous potential to amplify people's voices but there's also the you know, this the downside of um being under the control of corporations that don't have to answer to us, um, or government very often. So yeah, it's all it's yeah, it's changed. I mean I still think there's great things that can happen but yeah,
2: it's tricky. Mm. Landscape's changed a lot. But you're involved in a lot of interesting and great initiatives and MemFest is one of them. Yeah. Um, and that's partnered with Swinburne University but is a big organisation, or not a big organisation but branches across the globe in terms of
5: yeah Yeah, yeah. Um, MemFest was started by um, a colleague of mine, Oliver Vodeb, who's um, from Slovenia, in Slovenia, post-Yugoslavia, um, um, basically becoming... Um, broken up and becoming a, a capitalist, um, state, I guess. And, and it was started to, um, counteract what he saw as, um, again in design, particularly, um, the corporatization of media in Slovenia and then spread globally. And so I got involved when Oliver came to work at Swinburne and we, uh, did a big event a couple of years ago where we worked with, uh, the Brisbane Aboriginal Sovereign Embassy and the Grandmothers Against Removals. It's basically bringing academics, activists, members of the public, students, you know, interdisciplinary um, together to work cooperatively to make things that otherwise probably won't get made. Um, and so we we made a documentary about child removal, which, as you would probably know, since the Royal Commission in um, 1998, I think it was, it was, 3,000 Aboriginal kids in out-of-home care. There's now over 16,000. So uh, we made a documentary about that. We set up a number of websites that um, are used in those communities. Um, We made a lot of posters and other kinds of stuff that we've shared with, uh, particularly with people like Robbie Thorpe and Viv Marlow, who you know, great stalwarts of this station. Um, And, yeah, and then last year we worked again. We worked with... um, Uh, uh, Stevie Thorpe who's Robbie's nephew on a um, I guess a a site promoting his work with young Aboriginal men and we worked with a guy that you would know whose name escapes me at the moment he does the Stop Racism Now campaign at Flinders Street Um, Jaffrey yeah yeah. and uh, yeah so it's a great initiative and doesn't quite fit (laughs) in a a university Mm. but You know, we continue to try to make it work. Mm.
2: And you're speaking tonight where everyone can learn a little bit more at Melbourne Free University. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, pardon me. I'm getting well ahead of myself (laughs) on this bumpy ride. But um, And you're talking about identity politics and how it's used through social media. And if you could, I just wanted to get a small glimpse of how... Have you you noticed a change in the way students interact with one another and in classes since social media has been introduced?
5: to um, that It's really funny, because you would think, because, you know, they're mostly young people these days, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately for them, but, you know, it's not quite as diverse at university as it used to be. Um, and they're really cautious, you know, like I, I always, people always assume young people are, they don't know what they're doing, and then put everything out there. And I think they're actually quite the opposite. Um, part of that's just, you know, kind of, youthful reluctance to embarrass themselves in front of their peers but also I think they just understand more about the the you know pitfalls of just putting yourself too much out there so I've got a 23 year old son and I know he's really really cautious about what he uses social media for so I think um yeah, I think it's probably more people my age that are the problem, <laughs> not young people. Like, they actually get it, I think. Okay.
2: Well, thank you so much. And um, it's been great having you in here. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for Wednesday breakfast here at 3CR. But like I said, it's not tonight, it's tomorrow. Thanks, Lisa, for picking us up if you want to get down to the Alderman on Ligon Street. Yeah, it'd tomorrow, be great to see. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here, joining us on this bumpy ride on 3CR Wednesday breakfast.